V1. Pull up. Pull up. Pull up. Terrain. Terrain. Pull up. Terrain. Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, Todd. It looks like you and I again. Greg is off still doing other things. Which means he's going to miss all the fun. His loss, our gain. Well, he had some fun this earlier this week. He was off flying an airplane in conjunction with an accident. Uh, but now he's bogged down with uh, court issues. So, Fortunately, not involving him as a defendant. Yes, that's true. That's true. Well, we got another interesting accident to talk about today. Uh, this one you found. Uh, it's from 2017, but it involves a flight instructor with a student in the front, four-place airplane, with another wannabe pilot in the backseat who was just uh, going along for the ride and seeing what information, uh, tidbits that she could pick up to help her through her adventure to be a pilot. So three people on the airplane. It's out in California in the mountains, which is a dangerous place to start in, in uh, doing flight maneuvers. But in fact, that's what they were doing. And they had a practice area out there uh, over a valley, but it was in mountainous terrain. And they were trying to simulate engine failures, maneuvering. So not the place I would pick to do that, but in any event, that's what they were doing. And uh, there was a big disconnect between the student that was uh, flying the airplane and the instructor. They had different ac uh, accounts for what happened. Unfortunately, the student in the back seat, the young lady, perished in the accident. And those two received injuries, but they were not life-threatening. And the flight instructor reported that everything was normal with the airplane, uh, but the but the airplane could not outclimb the approaching terrain. So and we've seen that often. Usually people get themselves into a box canyon, can't turn around and they can't climb out. Not a good place to be. Now, the thing that struck me about this when I was reading the NTSB accident report was that the instructor, um, although the instructor and the student differed as to exactly the sequence of events, one thing they both agreed on was that the instructor wanted to fly toward rising terrain in order to do an engine out practice. And it struck me as kind of odd that 
rising terrain is not the kind of place you want to even simulate an engine going out since uh, in my not very sophisticated way of looking at things, if an engine or a system is running normally, any change to the system might cause a malfunction. Whereas if you kept running, it's less likely a malfunction will happen. Well, the malfunction in this case was possibly not a malfunction, but a performance issue. The student, or rather the instructor, didn't believe that the aircraft was climbing sufficiently to get over the rising terrain and, and it had taken over the aircraft. And by the way, the differing opinions as to the sequence of events, the student said the instructor led the whole thing. The instructor said he told the students to start the maneuver and the instructor took over when things weren't going right. The third person in the aircraft was a late addition. She had a training flight that day. It got canceled. She decided to join this uh, training flight at the last minute. Now, this was an aircraft and an instructor and students who were with the same training academy. So although they didn't go into details, one would presume that they were knowledgeable about each other and about each other's capabilities. And this sort of thing might be a normal thing. That is taking a joyride in the backseat just to see how other people are doing things. I've done it myself, and I have nothing against that. But the fact that you had a third person at the last minute, or rather not planned to be there, but they're there right before takeoff, means that some performance things about the aircraft won't be the same. It's not going to climb as fast as it would if it only had two people on board. And in fact, the NTSB in the investigation pointed out that the manual said under the loading conditions they had, they would have had a certain level of climb performance. The actual climbing performance was less than that due to part to the fact that while climbing, the instructor was also turning the aircraft and turning the aircraft reduces the climb performance somewhat. And also, and this is something in general for any aircraft, if you have a pilot's operating manual that tells you the performance of the aircraft, it's the performance of an ideal aircraft. It was done by a test pilot at that manufacturer under a specific set of conditions. And they put that in the charts and tables. If you were to manage your flight, assuming that those numbers were absolutely true for you in your situation, uh, it will be at a, let's just say it'll be a risky thing to do because your actual performance is probably going to be not as good as the published performance. The aircraft isn't going to be perfectly tuned. It's not going to be coming out of maintenance with all bells and whistles are working. And no one's going to have extra gear in the back of the aircraft. Uh, as opposed to a test flight where it will be a very clean aircraft with nothing else going on. So the fact that it underperformed, not surprising. The fact that the instructor deliberately was heading toward rising terrain in order to do this, that was surprising. Yes, very much surprising. You know, I never liked doing any maneuvers in hilly area. Fortunately, here in Massachusetts, we don't have hills like they have out there. In that place of California, that part of California, it's real mountainous. You know, we'll, we'll probably never know uh, what he was thinking at that time. Because will he be honest with it? I mean, we already have two different stories coming out of the two survivors. So I, I think we've got what we've got. We're not going to get any more. And the kind of thing that's tragic about this is that this represented three people in their 20s. And the person in the back who was killed was actually the daughter of an airline pilot who flies aircraft back in her home country of Bangladesh. She wanted to follow 
follow in her father's footsteps, was doing all the right things, going to a training academy in the U.S. where training tends to be more easily available and cheaper than in other parts of the world. And there's nothing that she, uh, well, the one thing that did stand out, which it wasn't clear from the accident whether or not this was the case, she was in the back of the aircraft. When the aircraft settled into the trees in the rising terrain, there was a tree that basically came up through the bottom of the aircraft right behind the left seat and was in the passenger area in the back. The person started off the flight in the right seat, but the report stated that her lap belt wasn't fastened and her injuries were on the left side of her of her body. So presumably, you know, she shifted as the aircraft hit the, uh, the trees. And John and I were speculating before the show that even if she had her lap belt on, the fact that she had shifted over to the left meant that instead of her entire body shifting, maybe the top of her body would have been shifted because I don't believe they would have had uh, shoulder harnesses in the back. And that being the case, she might still have been seriously injured or killed. But the fact of the matter is, all things being equal, if you're having an emergency situation and off-field landing, having your seatbelt on is typically way more conducive to surviving than not having it on. You know, I, the, uh, I, I don't think I would own an airplane today that didn't have a shoulder harness. And I have been telling people for a long time, uh, I'd even fly with a helmet today. The military knows that they, you know, all their people have to have helmets on. Everybody in the airplane has to have helmets on. It makes a big difference. It doesn't take a lot of uh, force to get blunt force trauma to your head. And the helmet can give you, you know, they're not going to protect you in every accident. But in some of these where the airplane stays relatively intact, and this one did, that a helmet may have uh, saved this girl's life because the report's clear that her skull was crushed, cracked open. So, And, and for those of you who are watching the video version of this, we're going to be having... Uh, photos from the from the public docket that clearly shows a tree trunk, I'd say about 10 inches in diameter, came up right through the floor of the aircraft, right behind the uh, two front seats, and was impinging on the passenger area. And anyone sitting in the passenger area, their legs would have been at risk of being seriously injured or or crushed by the tree trunk and the branches. But still, like I said before, if you have your seatbelt on, even in something as catastrophic as this, likelihood of survival is higher. And to the credit of the instructor who was flying this as it went in, uh, the aircraft is largely the passenger area, the cabin area is largely intact, save for the tree coming up to the bottom of the floor. Yeah, which would indicate a pretty slow speed at impact. So, uh, very interesting. Very interesting. But the key takeaway here is that first, um, well, this is more to the NTSB than anyone else. If you, in the in the report, and the NTSB did, indicate that there are two clearly different messages being said by the two survivors as to who was doing what. Looked in the public docket, there was a statement from the flight instructor in a, I believe it was a 1620 form, but nothing equivalent in, from the, the uh, student pilot. So it'll be interesting to note, what exactly was the difference between those two? And did the NTSB or the FAA or whomever 
come to a conclusion as to who was right because you had two very different statements. One, the instructor did it. Two, the student started and I tried to save the day, did the best I could. But still, the bottom line, the instructor is the one who made the decision to fly toward rising terrain to do this engine out that training. And uh, what kind of sense does that make? No, it doesn't make a lot of sense at all. What a terrible waste, that young lady promising career. And this happened in 2017, which was before the pandemic and such, and before the most recent increase in uh, demand for um, professionals in aviation. But even in 2017, there was a rising demand around the world for professional pilots, not just in the US, but in countries around the globe. And in spite of the fact that requirements overseas outside of the US might be not as strict as US requirements, still the basics have to be done. One has to be trained to be a pilot. One has to be able to be an instrument rated pilot and a multi-engine pilot before you even at the lowest rungs of being in the corporate or regional jet world. And that's the same whether it's in the US or elsewhere around the world. So it doesn't surprise me that there was a, a demand for it then. There's even more of a demand for it now because in the last two to three years, especially during the height of the pandemic, many airlines had cutbacks in staff because there wasn't a demand for it. There were pilots who took early retirement, pilots who went into a completely different career field and who were not gonna come back to flying airliners. But to be trained to be an airline pilot takes time. And flight schools, no matter where they are in the United States and elsewhere, have demand like they have not seen in several years. Now, if you're one of these people who are aspiring to be a, an aviation professional, hats off to you. Um, learning how to just do instrument training myself, I understand all too well how hard it is, even for the most dedicated people, to master the skills necessary to do so. But not at the risk of putting yourself at risk by doing things that don't make sense, by it, it going along with procedures you might think isn't squaring with what the regulations require, and by going with a flight school or flight program or a training program that seems to be convenient or inexpensive, as opposed to one that is meeting your basic requirements for reliability, responsibility, quality of staff, quality of equipment, et cetera. You know, there, I read an article recently, and uh, I don't know if somebody, I don't remember if somebody sent it to me or if it was just on the internet, but it was essentially uh, when you should fire your CFI. And, I saw that, that same article headline. Haven't read that story yet, but I will. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting uh, piece because I never did that. Although I did, I had one CFI, um, but I flew with a lot of other people just to get time and just to, uh, just to fly because I was hanging around airports and I was, you know, washing airplanes to, to go fly with them when they came out. So, you know, I, I guess maybe I'm, what I'm saying is I wasn't far off from this young lady and, and what she did. Trying to trying to uh, better my knowledge. And to that point, um, flying isn't cheap, not by a long shot. And most of the people, in my opinion, who are younger learning how to fly are going into serious debt in order to make this happen. And that's just an inescapable part of the reality of aviation. 
And if you're in a program and you think things aren't going well, either with that instructor or with the overall program that you're in, the right thing to do may be to fire your CFI or fire the whole program. The reality is you do that, there will be a lag time between you moving away from that one setup and finding another one. It may take you time. It may take you money. And if you're here on a visa and you have a certain amount of time to get things done, there could be considerations there. So we're not thinking for a second that this is an easy decision to make. Uh, there are many flight schools in the country, but they're not all concentrated in the same place. If you're flying in Texas and the best second option is in Florida, it's not only going to a new school, it's picking up and moving to a new state, setting up house and everything else that goes with that. Doubly difficult if you have a family to care about as well, not just yourself. Yes. Well, I think we talked this one to death. The takeaways are, you know, don't do stupid things. If you're out there flying around, pay attention to everything. You're going to do maneuvers, pay attention to if the maneuvers go bad, what am I going to do? Uh, before the show, we were talking about just routine flying, straight and level, about paying attention. If I have an engine failure, where am I going to put this airplane? I mean, they used to test me all the time. My friends and my the CFI would say, where are you going to put this? We just had an engine failure. Where are you going to put it? And you better have a quick answer because that if you didn't, that means you weren't thinking about it. You know, if he said that and he said, well, I just, there was a clear area we just passed. We turned to go back to it. You know, that kind of thing. So you know, flying an airplane uh, is not for the weak. Not for the weak. It's not insurmountable, but you got to use your damn head. And my next to last word, and it's a brief one this time, it goes to the planning for uh, last minute changes. In this particular accident, the last minute or unplanned change was adding a passenger. Nowhere in the report or the public docket did I see anything about the crew redoing their weight and balance, redoing their performance for the planned procedures that day. And if they were thinking ahead and thinking, we're going to do a high risk maneuver, uh, an engine failure practice in rising terrain. Whatever we plan for today, we have a, another passenger in the back. Should we do that maneuver at all? Should we do it with a bigger cushion? Should we do it over flat terrain? But the fact is, an extra person was added late in the planning stages. No indication that that was taken into account by the instructor or the student pilot. No. Crazy. Okay, guys. Again, my last word, and I, 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 even to myself, I sound like a broken record. But when you sit and review all the accident reports that Todd and I do, not only from the NTSB or the FAA, but around the world, you, you, you get frustrated because we're seeing the same things over and over and over again. So if you're going to go flying, do a very thorough pre-planning of your flight. You know, if you're going to do a, a long-distance one rather than just flying around locally, check the weather here, there, and everything in between. When you get out to your airplane, do a very thorough pre-flight inspection. Right? If you don't feel comfortable with what you're already doing, then talk to somebody, another pilot or a mechanic, right, and get to know your airplane. Get to know what to look for. Get to know where the problem areas are from people that have been around them longer than you have been. And 
after you get in the air, put that head on a swivel. Because even in countries with very little uh, aviation activity, every once in a while we find a near miss or, or a collision between airplanes in an area that shouldn't happen, wide open spaces. So please, please put your head on a swivel and fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.